Hi, Damien Marcus from 100 Not Out here. MP. Yes, Damo. We all know the importance of having a diary, but who wants a boring old day planner? Not me. Enter the journey of me. Ta-da! The incredible eight-month wellness journal designed especially for wellness peeps like you. Yes, Damo, this beautiful eight-month wellness guide is filled with questions, planners, exercises, reflective notes, and more. Endorsed by the Up For A Chat girls and loved the world over, the journey of me is a must-have if you're ready to live your best life for life. To purchase your very own journey of me and receive a free set of inspirational postcards, simply enter the code COUCH at www.wellandnew.com. That's www.w-e-l-l-i-n-e-u-x.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. team and welcome back to The Real Food Real. Today on the show we are joined again by naturopath Jad Patrick who we met for the first time back in episode 29. Today on the show Jad and I are going to discuss mental health and the nutrition and lifestyle interactions with depression and anxiety. Hi Jad and welcome back to the show. Hi Steph it's a pleasure to be back on. It's awesome to have you back. We had some great feedback from our last discussion about FODMAPs and gut health. But today we're talking about a very different topic. So let's start with um, the diet and lifestyle impacts on depression and anxiety. Can you take us through some of the key nutrients and their role to begin? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, that there is now a connection between our mental health and, um, you know, what we eat or the lifestyle that we lead. Um, certainly people know a lot about, you know, the, you know, counseling approaches and psychology and psychotherapy and the role of medication in treating mental health issues. But a lot of people don't realize that there is, um, you know, certain key nutrients that if we're low in or have excessive amounts of or, or, or that are in balance can, can also affect our tendency towards having, um, these conditions and other mental health conditions. But some of the key ones that, um, you know, I've looked into a lot of research into would be, Omega-3s, folate, B12 and zinc, that'd be the sort of um, main ones that I've come across uh, stuff to do with mental health, in particular depression, which has probably a bit more of a physiological component, but also certainly with anxiety and often the two of them go together anyway. Um, But Omega-3s we sort of know a lot about in terms of inflammation and helping with, um, you know, joint pain and also with, um, you know, cholesterol and lipid levels. But what a lot of people don't realize is a a significant percentage of the brain is actually made up of Omega-3s and and Omega-6s. The brain is mostly made of fat. And if we have an imbalance of fats in there, then that, you know, naturally disturbs the um, communication between, you know, cells and neurotransmitters and whatnot in the brain as well. So... Diets high in omega-3, you know, when there's been studies on people that eat a lot of, you know, oily fish or from areas that eat oily fish, um, and, you know, they tend to have lower rates of depression and in some studies also lower rates of anxiety as well and mental health in general. 
And, um, and there has been some research into supplementing with um, high doses of omega-3s for depression and anxiety with more mixed results, I, I might say, than, than natural dietary intake, which t- tends to be pretty consistent. Um, and that could be due to a bunch of different factors. But certainly um, omega-3s are incredibly important for mental health and for um, depression in particular and critical for brain function in general. Um, and it's, it's through a variety of mechanisms we think that they might have an effect. One is by um, uh, improving receptor function in the brain so our feel-good neurotransmitters can communicate properly between the cells. But also there's been a lot of research into the direct effect of inflammation in the body on mental health in anxiety and depression. And omega-3s do seem to dampen down that excessive inflammatory um, process in the body. Yeah, absolutely. And so do you predominantly recommend food sources of omega-3? As you discussed, there are some controversial uh, research studies on supplementation. Yeah, and look, I think when you look at the bulk of the research, that it, it does come quite favorably in you know towards using some, some fish oil supplements. I think some of the controversy probably comes from poor quality oils being used because omega-3s are so sensitive to oxidation and whatnot and it seems to be that not always researchers are aware of this and the oil might not be great quality and if it's already oxidized, it's actually going to have the reverse effect and increase inflammation in the body. So I do encourage people to eat more oily fish, your salmon, your sardines, tuna, mackerel, all of those sorts of great things or um, and, uh, and choose meats as well that perhaps are grass-fed and slightly higher in omega-3s than their grain-fed counterparts. But um, I think there is a role sometimes for supplementation and, you know, I assess that individually with my patients. But um, certainly if you're going to choose an omega-3, make sure that it's tested for stability, it's tested for heavy metals and perhaps it has some naturally occurring antioxidant added to it, like a little bit of vitamin E so that it's not rancid by the time you consume it, which um, some of the products on the shelf you see in many health food stores unfortunately are. What the two hundred capsules for eleven ninety five? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. Okay, so that's the omega three. Mm. Next is folate. Folate, yeah, folate's a, a really important one, and one that I think we need a lot more research in this area. There's a lot of studies that have found high intake of folate is associated with reduced depression and anxiety. And there's also studies that have found that when people have um, depression or anxiety and they're put on antidepressant medication, if they also have their folate le- levels maximized, either through supplementation or through diet, they respond better to the medication. So it's not only just um, helping people you know, prevent episodes of depression and anxiety, but it improves the ability of the medication to work. That being said... Um, some people don't process the synthetic form of folic acid um, in supplements very well and there seems to be a reverse effect when they supplement with high doses of synthetic folic acid, which is found in many many commonly available supplements. It can actually reduce the amount of available active folate for the brain. So I really encourage people to consume plenty of folate-rich foods. And the name folate, it gives a clue to what's rich in folate. It's from foliage. So leafy greens, spinach, um, you know, bok choy, broccoli, anything green and leafy is, is quite high in folate. And certain animal foods are as well, like liver and egg yolk. Um, but definitely folate's had a lot of research in it and it seems to be people who have healthy folate levels tend to have 
reduce uh, length of time in depression. If they do experience depressive illnesses, it tends to be shorter um, than people who are low in folate. And folate is critical for a bunch of different processes we know are important for mental health. So production of neurotransmitters and um, methylation and activation of certain genes and all sorts of other things. So it is a critical one and um, you can now get certain forms of folate that are better utilized by the body for people who do have, you know, abnormalities in their ability to handle folate and you're best to speak to you know someone who has a bit of experience in that area about what supplement might be right for you or increase your consumption of green leafy vegetables and folate rich foods yeah absolutely so we've spoken about the mthfr polymorphism on the show before and so we know that those that have the the mutation can't tolerate synthetic folate so would you that do that sort of test on your client first to then determine what was suitable? Sometimes I think it's useful. I think there's still a lot we don't know about MTFHR sure. and, mm. and its links, of course, and, and sometimes it can be relevant. If, if someone's had a long-standing issue with, you know, depression and perhaps they're just not responding to, you know, either medications or other strategies, then it has been useful. And I have had some patient who patients who have come back with abnormalities in their um, MTFHR gene and, and certainly they've... Um, felt some benefit in taking the activated form of folinic acid or methylfolate um, if they've got that as well. And um, it seems to have a, a subtle but noticeable sort of effect. Um, yep. And I think, you know, more research I'm sure will confirm how we dose that appropriately and combine it with other nutrients to maximise its effectiveness. But it's definitely something to consider for people who are really struggling with anxiety and depression and maybe you know, aren't, aren't getting the results they want from, from traditional methods, they might want to look into having their genes tested Yeah. Um, and to see if maybe there is an issue with their folate. I have seen as well a lot of people with the MTFHR mutation who have very high blood levels of um, folate on a blood test, which is an indication that that synthetic folic acid that they're getting from, you know, processed foods and from supplements is not getting converted and so spending time in the bloodstream, which is problematic because that's also been linked to certain, um, you know, cancers and things, although, again, more research is needed there. Yeah, very Mm. individualised, obviously, when it comes to the prescription. Absolutely, absolutely. And always best to do that in conjunction, you know, with a nutritionist like yourself or a naturopath or an integrative doctor who has some experience in that area. Yeah, absolutely. But a very interesting topic and, as you say, something that we'll find out um, much more about in coming years because it's a huge topic at the moment. Massive. Yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. And then the next one along the list that's that's important and goes hand-in-hand hand with folate is vitamin B12. Vitamin B12... Um, is uh, involved in many of the same cycles and energy pathways as, as folate. Studies have found people low in B12 have much higher rates of all sorts of different mental health issues, including anxiety and depression, and, uh, and are poorer responders to medication if their B12 levels are low. Um, and there have also been studies that found that you know strict vegan diets tend to be associated with slightly higher rates of depression and anxiety, um, although that hasn't always been consistent. Some studies have found the reverse, but it is an indication that there are certain nutrients that might be lacking on a vegan diet that um, uh, could be you know important for prevention of depression and anxiety in some individuals. And B12 also is really important to make sure you have adequate levels of when you are supplementing with folate because folate supplementation can sometimes mask B12 deficiency. So um, it is important to know your um, B12 status before megadosing on folate. Not that I advise that anyway. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, and, you know, a lot of 
foods in the diet that are high in um, B12 are also high in a lot of other nutrients that are good for you. So I think B12 is something that's um, often overlooked but critical for nerve function and mental health. Um, the other one that's interesting is zinc. Now, zinc um, studies on people with depression have found that their stores or blood levels of zinc are often quite low um, and that supplementing with the zinc sometimes helps depression, but not always. What some studies have found, though, is that when uh, someone has a lot of inflammation in the body, the, their zinc levels go down um, and depression is associated with inflammation. In fact, some people consider it an inflammatory illness as well as a, you know, a cognitive or mental health-related illness. And as the zinc levels go back up through supplementation or through food and those inflammatory markers come down, the depression starts to be alleviated. So it's probably more of a marker for inflammation in the body as rather than a direct cause of depression. Certainly, if you were really, really deficient in zinc, depression might be likely or anxiety. But more to the point, I think it's a an indication if someone's zinc levels are, are constantly low and they're suffering from, you know, low mood or whatever, it could be a sign that their body has this sort of low-level inflammation going on, which needs um, looking at from a variety of different angles. But certainly zinc is needed. It was interesting as well, I was just looking at a, uh, the average intake in America is between 11 to 15 milligrams of zinc. The average hunter-gatherer apparently was eating about 40 milligrams of zinc a day. Wow. So there's, you know, there's something in that to suggest that maybe we're not meeting our body's um, expected requirements as determined through, you know, evolution and, and what would have been available in a more, you know, hunter-gatherer-based um, diet or ecosystem. Well, I think that you make a good point there because we often get the argument that we shouldn't need to supplement if we eat well. I'm not sure if you hear that in clinic, yes. but... You know, we've certainly got to think about the the nutrients that we have access to these days through factors such as, you know, soil quality and agricultural practices. There's obviously been lots of advantages but many disadvantages of that modernisation that can lead to that depletion. So in some yeah. people, when you look at bloods and you try dietary intervention, there just is that case for supplements sometimes. Yeah, I, I totally agree and I think that's it, a it's a very good point. There's so much about our modern life that is great but there are there are factors involved in agricultural practices and processing of food that deplete us and we're also eating quite different foods to what we're eating even compared to 100 years ago, let alone, you know, thousands of years ago in our, in our evolution. So um, sometimes supplements are necessary and, and some people just don't eat enough of the right sort of foods as well. They just struggle to get, get some of those foods in and... Um, and that's where supplementation can be useful or, or when illness itself is depleting the body. So we're talking mm. here about inflammation. It, inflammation on its own can reduce zinc zinc uh, in the body through increased need and requirement and or through, also through um, it sort of getting stored away or locked away through the inflammatory process. Yeah, so let's talk more about inflammation actually. So we've touched on that with the um, role of omega-3, certainly the impact of inflammation on zinc levels. Yes. What, yeah. what is the impact of, say, poor nutrition to start, mm. the, that, that subsequent inflammation that we know comes from certain um, foods and yeah. obviously the flow-on effect for mental health? Yeah, okay. Well, I might, I'll, I'll take a quick step back mm. and, and talk about how we made the link between inflammation and depression. And one of the things that occurs, if, you, if you're infected with, say, the flu virus, 
for a day or so before you get the flu, often people feel really depressed and low and really lethargic and they tend to sort of want to retreat away from the world, go to bed, etc. And there's a, a name for that. It's called sickness behavior and it's induced by inflammatory cytokines that are released in response to a viral illness. And there's thought to be an evolved mechanism as to why that happens. And if you've got an infection that could spread to the members of your tribe or, or group, it's better for you to, you know, to, to move away and to withdraw and to yeah. sleep and rest. And interestingly, they've found similar levels of these inflammatory markers in people who have depression. And if you think about sickness behavior, it's a lot like depression. Depressed people, you know, struggle to get out of bed, want to withdraw from the world, feel really low, feel sort of isolated. And um, so there's, there's some, some kind of link between this inflammatory process going on and, and depression. Now, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg. There's some people say, well, the, the depressive thoughts and, and the cognitive sort of issues associated with depression might be creating inflammation somehow in the body. And then there's others that argue that, no, the inflammation starts first and then the depressed thoughts and mood follow. And I guess we don't know at this point exactly where the triggers are and it's probably coming from both directions and becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. However, we do know now that there is a link between you know, a, a cruddy diet or poor quality diet and inflammatory markers in the body. And correspondingly, the assumption is there that that might also be contributing towards, you know, the massive levels of depression we're seeing in, in modern life. So I guess some of the, the poor foods and things that can trigger inflammation, well, a lot of um, uh, processed foods are high in things called advanced glycosylation end products, which are uh, products of carbohydrates binding with, with fats and sugars. And they can be introduced... Uh, induce a subtle form of inflammation in the body. We have an imbalance in our diet of omega-3 to omega-6, and that can sometimes increase inflammation. We have high level of oxidized oil intake if people are eating a lot of fried foods or processed foods, and those oxidized oils in particular are pro-inflammatory. We have a very high intake of refined carbohydrate, which might be influencing the type of microbes that live in our gut, and those microbes can release... Um, uh, products that can affect the uh, body as well into causing inflammation. And imbalances of nutrients as well can contribute to um, a tendency towards inflammation, disturbances in circadian rhythm and sleep, etc. There's quite a lot of factors, of course, and inadequate intake of um, protective antioxidants and phytochemicals from food. So we know there's a lot of, um, you know, compounds in fruits and vegetables that seem to dampen down that overactive inflammatory response in the body and if you're not eating enough of those fresh fruit and veggies um, and eating too much processed crap the net effect is this subtle low level constant inflammation which not only makes you feel kind of lousy physically but seems to affect mental functioning and increase risk of um, anxiety depression and other mental illnesses yeah there's certainly a lot going on there yeah very complicated but there's you know, it's the, the good news about that complexity is that there's a lot of different angles you can target to help improve the health of you as a whole. And I think that's the exciting thing we're discovering now in mental health is that there's a lot more you can do than just mess around with neurotransmitters with medication and talk about, you know, your, your childhood. Like it's, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a lot more to it than that. I shouldn't laugh, but you're right. And I think that's a big part of the reason why we wanted to have this conversation today because... We obviously both want to spread that message that the pharmaceutical route is not the only one and certainly that the areas that we are covering um, 
should be explored as part of a treatment protocol. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And I think, you know, there is a time and a place for medication mm. and what people need to realise is there's a lot you can do with medication so it also works better as well so that you've got the right nutrients there and lifestyle factors there so that the medication does what it's supposed to do and helps lift you out of that depression or anxiety rather than you just becoming, I guess, in a sense, you know, reliant on it in a way. So, yeah. yeah. Great point. So I wanted to talk more about gut health actually. We've um, had plenty of podcasts on the topic so hopefully all of our listeners are across that to a degree. But mm. can you cover more on the, the role of the of microbes um, yeah. and mental health? For sure, for sure. Well, there's a few things at play here. So one, microbes themselves do produce a bunch of different neurotransmitters as, as their own kind of um, messengers that they send out to one another and, and to the host organism, which is us. And there is some thought that those microbes might actually be directly influencing our own mental state via the vagus nerve or vagal nerve in which has links to the gut and that could be how they're sort of communicating I guess with the brain. Um, the other way that it could be occurring is also by negative things that they produce, amines and stuff that when they get into the circulation are somehow disturbing normal neurotransmitters and making you, giving you that sort of foggy headed kind of effect. Um, studies in mice and rats have found that if you transport um, the gut microbes from an anxious mouse into a healthy mouse, the healthy mouse will start showing signs of anxiety. So we know it's, you know, it's something's going on in the gut that's triggering, um, you know, behavioral changes that look like anxiety in mice and rats anyway. And, um, and we're still at the very early stages of identifying, you know, what microbes have what particular effects and whether it might be very individual as well that you know, humans are very complicated and our behavior is very complicated. I, I doubt there's going to be a magic bullet probiotic that treats anxiety or depression. It might be a matter of understanding where imbalances are in the gut microbes that might be contributing towards anxiety and depression. But definitely we're finding more and more links between certain microbes and tendency towards mental health problems. In addition, and microbes also produce um, compounds like uh, tryptophan and um, B-group vitamins, etc., that are needed by the body to manufacture and produce neurotransmitters. Um, so if we have an imbalance of gut flora or they're not doing their job properly, we can have imbalances then in their byproducts which are needed for neurotransmitter balance. In addition to that, if we have um, you know, food intolerances, things like fructose malabsorption or uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth where you know, there's an overgrowth of too many bugs in certain parts of the gut, they can start gobbling up some of the nutrients we need. So we know that with fructose malabsorption, for example, there's an inhibited level, a person who's got fructose malabsorption still eating a lot of fructose, I should say, there is a... Uh, an increase in bacteria that then gobble up some of the tryptophan, zinc and folate in the gut and make it unavailable for you, the person. And so you get this sort of functional low level of folate, zinc and, um, and tryptophan, and tryptophan being the precursor to serotonin and further on along the track to melatonin. So you're seeing with these malabsorptions and food intolerances a, a decreased level of um, nutrient absorption which then can contribute towards mental health issues we also know with stress, anxiety and mental health issues that can affect gut function and so you get this vicious cycle developing where a person feels 
like crap and feels anxious and, and that affects their digestion and their digestion is already compromised so they're not absorbing the nutrients they need and so you need to tackle it from both both angles. You need to work on the stress and also work on the gut. Yeah, it's a huge area but thanks, thanks for showing us um, those those points. I think it does really show that sort of the testing and treatment needs to start from that foundation rather than it being a pharmaceutical on top of the areas that need addressing. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Beautiful. All right, so let's move on to some lifestyle factors. I wanted to discuss the influence of sunlight on mental health with you. Yeah. So there's two ways in which sunlight can affect mental health. One, we know that, you know, sun's important for the production of vitamin D and vitamin D has some anti-inflammatory effects in the body and, and it may have some um, indirect benefits for mental health and depression as well. So that's, that's one mechanism by which it works. But the other thing that, that um, sunlight's associated with, sunlight regulates our circadian rhythm. So basically when the light goes down at night and things get dark, we start releasing melatonin that initiates our sleep cycle. We go to bed, we wake up, the sun wakes us up and the sun triggers the breakdown of melatonin and, and turns back into serotonin, our feel-good hormone. So if that um, balance of light and dark is disrupted, we can cause disruptions in our melatonin levels in the brain and that's associated with um, depression and anxiety, poor sleep quality. And if you've got poor sleep quality, you're not going to be regenerating and repairing and normalizing all your neurotransmitters. So we know of a condition you know, specifically related to that, and that's seasonal affective disorder. So in winter, when people are spending more time indoors, away from natural sunlight, and maybe, you know, they're spending more time in darkness, their neurotransmitter levels can become disturbed and they tend to experience depression in winter. They also experience carbohydrate cravings and weight gain. It's very common in the northern hemisphere and, and people often use light boxes and, and light therapy to help with that condition. But these days, I mean, a lot of people even, you know, in Melbourne and um, other parts of Australia during a lot of the year, they're spending time indoors away from actual the brightness of natural sunlight, which is substantially brighter than, you know, any light you can have in your home. And, um, you know, they're at work all day at an office with artificial lighting, they're at home with artificial lighting, and it's completely disrupting that natural flow of light during the day and darkness at night. And that's leading, I think, to huge problems with our sleep. And um, and when sleep's disrupted, you know, inflammation levels increase in the body and the regulation of our neurotransmitters becomes impaired and we see um, an increase in depression, anxiety and other mental health issues. Um, so I think it's a huge area that's often overlooked but um, critical for health in general. We, we evolved outdoors and up until very, very recently in the last, you know, 100 or so years, we didn't have electronic lighting. So at night time, we pretty much went to bed when it was dark and we worked with the sun and, you know, even until 100 years ago, many of us worked outdoors on farms or, or whatever. So I think that's had a massive impact on um, on our mental health and we often underestimate the power of, um, of sunlight on mood and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And so is that the um, the impact of sleep and circadian rhythm on mental health as well, like the, the changes that happen with the disrupted absolutely. hormone production? Absolutely, absolutely. Like mm -hmm. melatonin in some ways sort of 
sets the kind of tempo for many of the other hormones and neurotransmitters in our body. I like to think of our hormones as like an orchestra. Melatonin is one of the conductors, so to speak. And if melatonin is not being released at the right rhythm and tempo according to our you know, circadian rhythm, then it throws the whole orchestra off. And so you can see all sorts of abnormalities showing up in, in your hormones and, and including ones that affect your mental health as well as other hormonal aspects in the body. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's definitely related to that. Plus, we know that lack of sleep or lack of quality sleep increases gene- the, the genes, is, yeah, the activity of genes associated with inflammation. And as, as discussed earlier, inflammation is associated with depression and anxiety too. Yeah. It's all very much connected, isn't it? Mm. Right. Absolutely. And we've heard some, or some, seen some fantastic research about the impact of both um, exercise and mindfulness on mental health and um, certainly the management of depression and anxiety. Could you take us through the role of both exercise and mindfulness? Yeah, I mean, mindfulness is huge at the moment. It's had a massive amount of research into it. It certainly is the, the buzz thing in, in, in um, many areas of health, both um, mental health and, and in general. And mindfulness is, you know, a, a meditation practice, I guess you'd call it. It's the, the process of observing our thoughts and feelings without judgment, allowing them to occur, you know, watching the process of thinking rather than getting hooked by it or caught up in it. And studies on um, mindfulness, uh, people who are practicing active mindfulness, you know, up to 20 minutes a day have found decreases in inflammatory markers in the body. Um, regular mindfulness practice has also been found to increase um, uh, well, in cells in the parts of the brain associated with de- depression and anxiety. So chronic stress has been found to decrease cells in um, the hippocampus and hypothalamus and that then affects anxiety and depression. Mindfulness seems to counteract that. So we're finding that mindfulness can actually help restructure our brain and regrow our brain, which, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was just unheard of. And I think it's miraculous that we are at a point now where we can really influence the structure of our brain through meditation and um, mindfulness and, and other strategies, including exercise. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just a, an amazing area and something people really need to look into. It's, um, it's, it's yeah, very powerful stuff. Mm. Um, in terms of exercise, exercise has got loads of research for improving all sorts of different things and mental health that has a huge impact. It's often not mentioned by um, practitioners, which is a shame. In fact, the two most powerful ways to permanently or semi-permanently increase serotonin levels in the brain or normalize serotonin levels. One is electric shock therapy or electroconvulsant therapy, which not many people are really keen to have done, but it's a very potent way to reverse resistant depression. Now, if you didn't want to have that done, the other most powerful way, which is almost as powerful and the effects you can you know, keep going with is, is vigorous exercise. So exercise that's quite intense for a good, you know, a um, few hours worth in a week, about three or four sessions of intense exercise can have a similar effect to electric convulsant therapy, which is pretty amazing. And I, I can't believe that it's not recommended more for people with um, depression and anxiety for that purpose. I mean, obviously, you've got to 
tailor the advice to where someone's at. If someone's so depressed they can't get out of bed, then there's you know you've got to work on that first, and that might require medita- uh, medication and other strategies as well. But certainly, you know, when people are trying to prevent relapses, or if they've you know had some treatment and they're doing okay, and 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 really want to enhance that, um, vigorous exercise has profound effects. Um, exercise as well also increases. Um, uh, what's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like fertilizer for the brain. It helps the brain cells to regenerate and repair, and um, and that is also really critical for anxiety and depression, where we do see some impairments in um, the functioning of certain parts of the brain that seem to be, uh, you know, re- possibly reversed through exercise and mindfulness-based practice. Um, yeah, so yeah, very exciting stuff. Absolutely, and I think. Most of the suggestions are all very much, you know, fairly simple and controllable, but definitely an important part of the of the treatment and something that we should see as a, a stage progression to support the individual. Definitely, definitely. I think for a long time we've sort of considered the the mind as being very separate from the body, the sort of Cartesian duality theory that we, you know, that the mind is this independent kind of entity. And now we're understanding through science the mind is a physiological thing. It is based inside the body. So anything that affects the body is going to affect the mind. There is no separation. It's all one. And um, it's fantastic that there's now a lot of research confirming what, you know, many of the sort of, old school kind of, you know, uh, health practices sort of said, you know, things like Ayurveda and naturopathy and TCM have all kind of stressed the importance of a whole body approach to managing mental health. It's not just about your thoughts and your thinking and your feelings. It's also about, you know, how your physiology is working. And um, it's an exciting time, I think, for people with these conditions to know that that there is a lot you can do and that they can be reversible and, and, and in fact, you know, curable in some instances. Um, if you, you know, if you're lucky enough to get it early and um, and treat it from a variety of different angles. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Now, I wanted to summarize um, herbs and supplements that can be beneficial as a treatment option. So perhaps when we don't need to explore the pharmaceutical route or even in conjunction yeah yeah definitely and i think it's important to say here if you're going to explore herbs in particular but also nutrition for mental health do so with a knowledgeable practitioner of course and and also if you're on medication don't suddenly withdraw yourself because you can do some serious damage there um and reverse some of the beneficial effects of the medication but um certainly some of the herbs that have received a lot of research. St. John's Ward is a really well-known herb. Um, it, uh, it's often used for uh, mild to moderate depression. It's had many studies done on it. By and large, I think, you know, the ones I've looked at that have used good quality herbs and decent dosages have been positive. Some have been negative. It's worth noting, though, that some of those negative ones also used or compared St. John's Wort to antidepressant medication. The antidepressants also didn't work very well. Depression is a is a tricky illness. It's um, very responsive to placebo effects and sometimes has the opposite of effects with drugs and herbs. So it's hard to say, but it seems to be St. John's work may work through um, serotonin and dopamine and possibly some other factors. It does have a lot of very potent antioxidants in it and the whole herb itself might also be reducing some inflammation in the body. We don't know. I certainly found St. John's Wort a fantastic herb for mild depression, um, anxiety, 
Uh, I've used it myself for my own sort of mental health issues in the past and, and found it incredibly effective. Again, though, used in conjunction with a bunch of other, you know, techniques and nutrients and whatnot. Um, so I find that very useful for depression. But St. John's Wort does affect the way other medications work. So don't just go to the health food store and get some because it can increase the breakdown of other drugs in the system, which can be very dangerous for people on, you know, blood pressure medication or heart medication, even the contraceptive pill. Um, so be careful with that one. Do it in conjunction with a herbalist or naturopath or someone who knows, you know, what, what they're doing there. Um, also, never use St. John's Wort with other antidepressants. It can increase their effectiveness too much and you can induce what's called serotonin syndrome, which can be very dangerous if not potentially life-threatening. Um, but otherwise, a very safe, good herb. It does take a few weeks to start working, though. So if people are exploring it, don't think you just pop a tablet and you feel better. It takes a while to work. For anxiety, one of the herbs that's had a lot of research, including by uh, a lot of research done in Melbourne, is kava. Kava um, is quite a potent anti-anxiety herb it's you know herb used in places like fiji as a recreational drug i guess it's um the roots mashed up there and mixed with water and then drunk and it has a calming sort of effect similar to alcohol without the intoxication or um or euphoria it's um had quite a lot of studies done on it now for generalized anxiety disorder and other anxiety issues and it works just to sort of um, similar to a valium it just calms and slows things down and relaxes the muscles helps with sleep very good I've found with people with panic attacks and panic disorder and that chronic low-grade anxiety. Again, I don't see it really as the cure or solution to an anxiety problem. It's just it's a tool to help people to manage their anxiety better while they work on other strategies to combat anxiety and things like psychotherapy and counselling and mindfulness are all critical as well as diet and nutrition. So, um, again, Carver, you just got to be careful if you've got any liver conditions and um, do so in conjunction with a herbalist or naturopath. Um, uh, other herbs, some more gentle ones that people can definitely sort of use themselves, so things like um, uh, valerian, passionflower, lemon balm, they're, they're great as teas and they've got very gentle, relaxing effects. I often get my patients to use the teas as an opportunity to practice mindfulness. So getting a relaxing tea like passionflower and mixing it with um, you know, some other teas and having that as a ritual in the evening where you sit down, you wind down, you notice the taste of the tea, the feel of the warmth of the cup, the smell, um, and, and just really use that as an opportunity to get back into the body and out of your head um, and to engage in a sort of sensory experience. And that sort of helps on its own. And then in addition to that, some of those herbs have, um, uh, you know, some documented effects for anxiety and, and mental health. Um, so passion flower, lemon balm, they're all good ones. Um, if you're getting them in tea form, most of the time they're pretty safe, but always speak to, you know, if there's a naturopath on staff in the health food store, check with them that if you're on any medication. Um, so they're, they're good ones to have a look into. Um, and in terms of nutrients, uh, well, we've talked about zinc and B12 and omega-3s and folate. I think all of those can be good, but do it with someone who knows what they're doing and you can have a look at your diet as a whole and lifestyle as a whole and maybe assess where there are some uh, deficiencies or insufficiencies and, um, and you know, treat that uh, accordingly with appropriate supplementation. Yeah, amazing. Some great advice there. And I wanted to touch on gene testing probably as our last subtopic today. Sure. 
what do you do or, or what is the best way to use genetic testing to help with our perhaps diagnosis and or treatment? Yeah, well, gene testing is a... It's a bit of a buzz at the moment in the, in the natural health field and I th I've got some reservations about it because I think some people are probably doing too much with it that we don't really, we're sort of shooting in the dark in some senses. The, the gene test I guess most people are doing at the moment is for the MTFHR mutation. The MTFHR um, gene it regulates the um, conversion of folate into its active form in the body to be used in cycles including the production of neurotransmitters and you can have certain um, you know kinks or abnormalities in that gene and not necessarily you know they're not dangerous or mutations in the, the, the sense that we normally think of them they're just the gene maybe doesn't work as quickly as as it should it's it's in uh, inadequate in its production of those enzymes uh, those key nutrients and I think that one can be useful for just getting an indication of, you know, is this person dealing with folate properly and maybe is this a contributing factor in their um, mental health issue. It's not the first thing I look at. I think there's lots of things you can look at in diet, lifestyle and making sure someone's also explored counselling options first. Um, but it's certainly something that I've found um, does show up a bit in mental health clients and seems to respond to... Um, you know, activated folate supplementation like folinic acid available in Australia or um, and also making sure that they're getting plenty of uh, food-based folate, you know, from green leafy vegetables and avoiding the um, synthetically added folic acid in, in foods and cereal products on the market too. There is a stack of other genes involved in mental health and we're only just beginning to scratch the surface on what they mean, what they mean to the individual and what they mean in in concert with the other genes that are out there. So no gene works in isolation. It produces things that then affect other things and there's lots of carry-on effects. And I think it's too early to say that, you know, this particular gene will cause you to be more aggressive or this particular, you know, it's, it's so much more complicated than that. And, um, the yeah, I'm, I'm sort of reluctant to do a huge amount of gene testing because it can be very expensive for people. Um, when at the at the moment I still think some of it is um, in, in in the way we approach treatment is can be a bit experimental, so I'm sort of a bit conservative with with gene testing, but it can be useful for sure. Yeah, you make some good points. I think certainly the popularity of gene testing um, it can be you know beneficial from an awareness point of view. It's like at least an individual knows that perhaps it is a genetic predisposition that can be managed yes, yeah. but at the same time we know that the genes aren't necessarily being expressed in the environment so we don't start treating every polymorphism or everything that comes up on a 23andMe or a Exactly. Or a, or a gene so test. Just because you have the gene doesn't necessarily mean it's causing you any problems. You know, there's plenty of people that have these mutations that don't have any issues, but it is, it just, it's another piece of the puzzle that mm. we could look at and sort of say, okay, maybe this is having an influence here and let's see what we can do about that. Yeah, absolutely. And if we do um, have the awareness of the predisposition, then it's a fantastic treatment route, which can then obviously be. Um, you know, tested as part of the whole plan. I think the yes. individual having that awareness is important as well because, as you say, for a long time, we've just sort of treated it as, I think that, you know, you have a mental health, health issue and mm. you need to take drugs rather than it being, um, I guess, a series of underlying explanations that can be factored in. 
Exactly. You know, what's going wrong in the system that's causing this? It's not you're not just born with depression mm. and nothing you can do about it. it. It comes and goes and we need to understand why is it coming and going and what are the contributing factors and genes certainly play a role. The good thing I would say about gene testing though that um, is worth mentioning is once you get it tested once, you know that that that's it. You, you, your genes don't change. So you've got that information for the rest of your life. And so if new discoveries are made, you've already armed with that information so you can make that assessment. So there is that going for it as well as that. The information is uniquely you and always applicable to you for the rest of your life. Yeah, you're right. So there isn't that ongoing expense of retesting per se, which might happen exactly. with other sort of hormones or blood profiles. Exactly. So that the cost might be, you know, significant to someone up front. But as you say, they've got that information forever and they can perhaps start to look at different areas to explore, A, with, with the research that we'll see in coming years, but B, as, yes. they, as they change because their body will be evolving and responding to different nutrition and lifestyle interventions every day, exactly. every week, every year. Exactly, for mm. sure. No, I totally agree. Amazing. It's been so cool to chat with you today and we've definitely uncovered a lot of areas that can be included in the treatment, um, even the diagnosis of mental health issues. Yeah. Um, and we are all looking forward to your book. <laughs> Yeah, which we it, discussed last time on the show. Yes, I'm. I'm. It's it's taking up a lot of my headspace. Speaking of anxiety, <laughs> <laughs> I'm hopefully finding out if it's all going ahead really soon. But it's certainly something I'm committing to writing now, regardless of yeah. whether I, I publish it or not with this particular publisher. But it's very exciting, and I'm I'm thrilled to be able to um, share this information. Hopefully, in a way that's accessible to the average person and. Um, and sort of, you know, collates a lot of the information together because I just don't see that really on the market at the moment, a book that covers the kind of nutritional and lifestyle aspects specific to anxiety and depression. There's a lot about, you know, mindfulness and cognitive behaviour therapy and medication obviously, but I think there's that sort of a bit lacking. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to put something together that will be worth um, worth writing. Absolutely, and it's a conversation we need to keep having so the knowledge keeps spreading and that we can have a much greater natural approach to treatment. Yeah, fantastic. Awesome. I agree. All right, Jad. What I'll do is I'll pop um, your details in the show notes for anyone that wants to reach out to you. I know we had a few listeners see you for personalised support and consultations after your last episode, so I'm sure yes. we'll have the same um, effect this time. So all your details will be in the show notes. Fantastic. Um, and I look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you so much again, Steph. It's been a pleasure. I love coming on the show. Excellent. We'll speak soon. See ya. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.